You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 166. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Our Take segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. We are back following two sold-out live webinars over the past couple of weeks. One of the topics we spoke about at the presentation was the concept of price versus value in the broader context of the stealth technology stock crash the markets have experienced over the past year. I will touch on that topic today. Additionally, Aaron is prepped and ready to discuss investing in dividend growth stocks in high inflation and, ri- and rising interest rate environment. In the next segment, he will look at he will also look at in this segment Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, single symbol BIP.UN on the TSX, a long-term focus buy in our Canadian income slash dividend stock research as a great way to battle inflation. Our first your stock our take this week comes from a listener on Acuity Ads, a company which we happen to have just met with management in person over the last couple of weeks. Acuity operates in the ad tech industry, providing marketers a solution for digital advertising. The listener notes that the stock is down 87% from its high in the range of $32 in February of last year to the $4 range today. He asks if this cash-rich small cap is now on sale, whether we think it's a buy or a hold or a sell at present. Finally, in our stock versus stock segment, Brennan answers a client question on two U.S.-listed Brazilian fintechs. That should be interesting. Stone Co. or Page Zagiro, I believe. He asks which we would throw our hard-end dollars behind. Well, I'd like to welcome Brennan and Aaron, my co-hosts this week. How are you two doing? Doing well. Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. We're just, we just, like I said, completed our live webinars, the first to start 2022. We're happy to say they were sold out. You can still get a copy of that. Watch it right now on demand, uh, which will really give you everything you need to know to build a simple 15 to 25 stock portfolio. Most importantly, what stocks to put in it. That seven stock starter portfolio. Just go to www.keystocks.com to order it. Uh, yeah, I'm, it was, you know, it was a good event that we had, full rooms, which is awesome. And uh, now we are just uh, putting together our, we, we came back from the Roth con- conference and we're putting together a report for clients that should be out uh, the tail end of this week or early next week uh, in their inboxes uh, about all the companies that we interviewed, 20 plus companies at that event. So we're working on that and uh preparing actually for a conference at the start of next month where we're interviewing more companies in Las Vegas. So busy times right now. That will be fun. Yes. Yeah, it was it was a great it was a great DIY seminar, I thought. We always are trying to improve it and make it a little bit better every time. So 
I thought we'd put some new content in there, but we 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 do want to always change it a little bit, essentially every year, and make sure that we're putting out the information that that people need to hear. So one of the one of the more topical areas of focus in the DIY event was a little bit of talk on the inflationary environment, um, dividend growth stocks, and so I'm going to talk about that today on today's session. Yeah, pe- of the podcast people want to well. know how you address the massive inflation we're seeing, how you can position your portfolio. Do you do anything? Do you modify slightly? And and what, you know, what kind of investments can you put your hard-earned dollars into uh, fight inflation? And Aaron's got a good suggestion on that today, for sure. I think that one of the, I think that one of the main points that we always want to, that we've always been making at the DIYs and outside of the DIYs as well, is that you don't want to base your portfolio on uh, your ability to predict the future, right? So a lot of people, they'll have certain opinions in terms of what's going to happen uh, six months to two years from now in terms of uh, is inflation going to continue to be an issue or commodity prices going to continue to be strong? And then they build their portfolio around that prediction. But that's that's an extremely risky way to invest. So we, our, our view, and it's it's this strategy never changes, is that you want to build a portfolio that is well positioned because there's a mix of different types of companies in it that's well positioned to perform well in a variety of different economic scenarios, right? And I'll just give you just give you an example of how you can make a mistake, so or or how it can it can turn against you. So right now we're dealing with a high inflation environment. Interest rates have have risen. Um, they, they've come up. Bond yields have come up. So a lot of people are looking at that and they're thinking, well, you know, what what do I do as an investor to make money in a high inflation environment? You know, some people will come to the conclusion that they should invest very heavily in commodity stocks, very heavily in metals, very heavily in in oil and gas, because traditionally uh, th- some of those areas have done well in a high inflation environment. Okay, well, if you are right, one, two, three, four years from now, you stand to make a lot of money. But there's also a flip side to that. Uh, one of the things that inflation can cause is recession. So once we get into a high inflationary environment, that causes a lot of economic problems, which causes the central banks to increase interest rates. And for a variety of reasons, that puts negative pressure on economic growth and can send us into an inflation into a recession. Well, in a recessionary environment, commodities like energy and metals are generally not where you want to be. So the chances that you're going to build your portfolio around a prediction and then be able to get out in time if that prediction turns out not to be true, very low, very low. And this is the reason why, you know, you can't just build your portfolio around that one prediction that you're making or two predictions. You need to build a portfolio that is positioned in a number of different growth market. So when we're building portfolios for our clients, we're recommending stocks. Yeah, some of those companies are in energy, some are in commodities, but also in technology, also in other attractive areas like infrastructure, infrastructure assets, infrastructure development, um, some industrials, industrial properties, residential assets, like a mix of different markets that are positioned whereby, you know, most of these markets, if you're in an inflationary environment, most of them will still perform relatively well. But even if inflation is not as much of a factor two, three years from now, there's still some defensiveness in that portfolio too. So those those stocks should continue to perform well. And that's really the main point, I think, when it comes to portfo- portfolio building from a bird's eye view that we're, we're, we try and 
we try and stress for sure. to investors. I even extend like the not wanting to predict the future when there is uncertainty to like a company that uh, we interviewed down in California. I won't say it because it is going to be in the Roth report that we're coming out with. Um, but this one company ended up experiencing kind of a surge in sales uh, from new gun owners during 2020. And, you know, we could go out and kind of make a prediction that either sales are going to go up or go down in the next couple of quarters. But, you know, we're kind of thinking that maybe it is the best with that specific business to sit back, you know, uh, and just kind of wait and watch. You know, sometimes that's the best thing to do. Sit on your hands rather than, you know, trying to predict the future, uh, especially the near term future uh, in, in that case. You know, rather, it, it's just good sometimes to, you know, get those quarters under your belt and see the trajectory of the business um, going forward. Yeah, well said. And sometimes if you like a company, but there's some uncertainty, potential uncertainties in the near future, you can start with a quarter position, half position, True. and then look to potentially add to that as time goes on and and the company hits some of the targets you're looking for them to hit. Yeah, I mean, and the, you know, talking about positioning a portfolio all in one area of the market is just is a fool's game. I mean, there's I we've we do tons of conferences. We're back doing them in person now. We've done them, you know, uh, through webinars and stuff like this over the past couple of years, but uh, over the past 20, 25 years, uh, there's times in the market where there was a time when energy was going to 200 to 300, you know, and so everybody was wanting to position their portfolio all in oil. There was no way it could go any lower. And, you know, anybody who did that put a significant percentage of their portfolio oil eventually ended up falling, you know, to the 50, 40, $30 range. And it was for many who were investing in this segment at that time, it was no brainer for it to go to $200, $300 US a barrel. Um, so if you would have done that, you would have destroyed your capital. Uh, putting it at, you know, when cannabis was legalized, there was many people who had like 50% of their portfolio in cannabis stocks because it was the hottest thing in the markets at that time. That would have been terrible. You know, you look at the three, four years after legalization, uh, what has happened to cannabis stocks over that time. Uh, even having all in tech, you know, there's some amazing businesses. Tech is a, a far broader range of companies than cannabis or energy. But even all in tech, we've witnessed the tech crash, uh, the stealth crash in tech over the past year, where 50% of the NASDAQ is cut in half over this from their highs over last year. So if your portfolio was completely exposed to that, you luckily, you've likely face significant losses. So shifting from one sector to the next, trying to position with it, which is the next hot sector, uh, for us is not the way to construct a portfolio that has sustainability over the long term. And we see this countless times and I get questions from investors all the time about whether they should be jumping from here to there to here to there. Trying to predict the exact entry and exit points is impossible. Anybody who tells you that they can do it, uh, if you're in a room with them, I'd run out of that room because they're selling you something that you shouldn't believe in. So uh, it's, a, it's a good su summary of that uh, topic. And uh, we'll continue to touch on some of the topics we, um, we have went over in our webinar in the next couple of weeks on our podcast as well. Now, one of the 
topics. We're done with that topic, right, guys? We're good? Yep. We for now. That. For we now, we're done with it. We may go back. We'll go back. But one of the topics we went into depth in on the webinars I'm going to talk about now was the stealth technology crash and potential buying opportunities. Now, included in that concept or that segment was a quote from Warren Buffett. I'm going to go over what it means today. He talked about price is what you pay and value is what you get. It was uttered by him in the 2000, his 2008 annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Now, um, we have long touched, I said we touched on the stealth crash and the opportunity to buy great tech businesses long term in the event it continues in a past show and really went into depth, like I said, in our webinar. Today, I'd like to discuss the price and value part. So price and value are two sides of the same coin. Understanding the difference between price and value is a core principle of value investing. It is core to Keystone's hybrid strategy, which involves buying growth and dividend growth stocks that offer GARP. GARP is growth at a reasonable price. Not the cheapest stocks on the market, nor will we pay anything for a business. We look for reasonable prices for good businesses. Now, unfortunately for me, the principle has been largely ignored over the past 12 to 18 months by investors chasing growth at any price, and we've seen that come home to roost. This is precisely why I think that one of the things that we can stress right now is to pay attention to the value of what you're getting in today's market. Uh, we, we saw that euphoric run up in technology or disruptor stocks, investors buying stock symbols, which is the price with little consideration to value. I believe this was fueled by cheap money, record stimulus, and low rates. So many growth-oriented disruptors at this time traded at 50 to 150 times sales with limited to no cash flow. To me, the poster child for this is the ARK Innovation Fund. We've talked about this in the past. It's run by recent market darling, Kathy Wood. The fund itself, other than Tesla, does not own any of the mega cap eight. And the mega cap eight, we'd say the Facebooks, the Alphabets, the Apples, the Microsofts, etc. of the world are included in that group. Now this fund, what does it own? It owns potential disruptors or innovation stocks. The fund performed very well for a four to five year period as money piled into these stocks, but the ARK fund ETF, innovation ETF, has lost billions with the unit price down over almost 40% in the last three months and approximately 50% over the past year. It turns out valuations matter, particularly when we face uncertainty. So as inevitable as Thanos, I would say, or more appropriately, death and taxes, the market tends to remind you that one cannot just pay any price for most stocks. In my opinion, many of the top holdings in this fund were trading at unrealistic valuations. So let me take a look at those valuations right now. We just took a look at them. Um, this is after many of them have dropped 50% in value. To give you some context, the market P.E., is about 22 and a half at present. So we're going to take out the giant Tesla from the equation here. Of the top holdings, the top 12 in the ARK fund, only one has a PE of under 30. That's Coinbase. And its earnings are actually expected to, to decline over the coming year. Seven of the 12 companies do not have any current earnings or even adjusted earnings. And while the price to sales multiples have decreased with the prices cratering, historically they remain high. Again, most of the stocks in this fund have lost 50% of their value, so one can only imagine uh, the, on average, three to six months ago before the stealth correction 
what they traded at. Many traded at 50 to 100 times sales. Now, I will give you an idea of how overvalued these businesses are in a historical context. Here, I'm going to do a quick breakdown of the peak valuations on some of the best truly disruptive tech companies over the past couple decades. If you look at Alphabet or Google, what is its highest price to sales multiple historically? 23. Netflix, 14. Salesforce, 19. Amazon is 40. Now, that was during the dot-com boom, so it was literally just a, you know, Amazon.com at that time. Two years later, after it just touched 40, it was at one-time sales. Meta or Facebook at its highest point was at 24-time sales. As you can see, that list is a true once-in-a-lifetime investment list. And none of them came close to the you know, 50 to 150 times that many of these tech darlings or these innovation darlings were, were trading at. So it, to me, it's not surprising at a time where we saw risk assets come under pressure, stimulus receding and inflation and interest rate worries to have a sell-off because value, again, does matter. Next week, I'm going to talk about what you can do in your portfolio, specifically in reference to inflation and rate hikes, and Aaron talked about that today as well. But I'd like my co-host to comment on the valuations we're seeing kind of intact now and what we saw over the last 12 to 24 months and what we're seeing again today. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... it's, Go ahead, Brennan. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that it's, you know, like you said, Ryan, or have said, you know, so many of these stocks, people were placing, you know, unicorn type valuations on them. And you know, just one thing that I wanted to say is that I know we are going to be in uh, interviewing one of these companies in Las Vegas uh, coming up in the beginning of May. I would like to hear it straight from the, you know, the horse's mouth and see what even the the CEOs of these companies, um, you know, uh, are were thinking of their own valuations because I mean they weren't justified and they can't even you know they can't try to tell us that they were justified. Um, but yeah, that's all I wanted to say. You know, just that we will be interviewing one of these companies, um, and uh, you know maybe we'll you know kind of discuss the interview on the podcast a little bit and you know come back from uh, or with what they you know talk about and say about you know the ridiculous valuations that they were trading at at that time and even still continue to trade at. Right. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about the market is that a lot of the time when a company is in a higher risk phase of its growth before it's profitable, it will actually trade at a much higher, more expensive valuation based on sales than it would if it were actually transit had actually transitioned into profitability. And that's uh, it's, that's a strange dynamic in the market. And it's something that that I don't really like. And part of the reason why I think that that is, is that once you start producing earnings, it becomes real. And when something becomes real, people can't use their imagination enough. Whereas, you know, if you're just a revenue growth story, you're pumping out a ton of revenue, you're losing a lot of money, but people could just look at the revenue line. They don't have to think about the reality of profit margins and earnings and earnings growth. And they can just kind of let their their imaginations run. Yeah, let their imaginations run wild, right? But for, for us profitability and cash flow from a business it's it's what validates the business model it proves that whatever that company is offering actually works because the experts in the industry that they're selling to are actually paying for it and they're paying a price that allows that company to operate um at a net profit which is the purpose of a business it's 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 to generate a profit add value 
and generate a profit in the meantime. But you look at, at some of the tech companies, as you said, we saw tech companies, you know, over a hundred times sales, whereas, you know, some of the greatest companies in the world, largest, greatest companies in the world, like a Microsoft, right around 12 times sales with excellent profitability, uh, a Google or Alphabet, you know, typically under 10 times sales, right? Um, but these are businesses where, you know, you, you, they actually are producing earnings and you're looking at their growth rate and they're growing their earnings at, you know, sometimes 20 to 30, 40%, which is extremely impressive, but it doesn't allow the imagination to run wild. Uh, our advice is just don't invest with your imagination. Look look yeah. at the actual facts, the figures, the the hard assets behind the business, and and that's why we that's why we focus on profitability. Yeah, and and the proof is in the results. To be honest, you look at what Alphabet and Microsoft have done during a very significant technology correction relative to you know the entire Nasdaq, fifty uh, percent of it. Sorry, fifty percent of it basically being down, cut in half or more. Um, and you've got, you know, these companies who had tremendous run-ups over the past two to three years, you know, off five or 10 percent relative to, you know, taking a haircut on your money of half. You know, it, 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 it's where you put your dollars in technology or in any sector that matters. And, and, you, and you know, for the near term, you can have a focus on revenues, revenues, revenues. And then, you know, it's, it's the hot potato in the room. The music stops, somebody's holding it, and you really get kicked in the market. And that's what happens if, if you know, the earnings and cash flow aren't there. When they are there, even in a correction or a significant or even a crash, I mean, it, you have some, it's not a house of cards. You have something to back up the business, and they can have a correction, but they don't have an absolute crash. And that's, you know, we're looking to make money, but also not lose as much. So let's get to a question from our mailbag this week. We got a question on acuity ads from Larry. Uh, in a question that I can only assume is echoed by Larry's brother, Daryl, and his other brother, Daryl. Now, I know Brennan will not get that reference, and I doubt even Aaron will, but it's Brennan, you don't know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. Larry Way over my head. Down. Way over my head. Yeah. Do you even remember that, Aaron? Uh, no, I don't. Before we get into acuity, should we talk about should we talk about dividend stocks and high inflation environment? Jesus, I thought you already did that. I'm kidding. We, I so did not. No, no, no I did it, talk a little bit about it, but no. Why, why don't we get into this? Um, because I think okay. it's it's very topical, uh, Ryan. Clearly, I'm not listening. Obviously, to what you're you just saying. don't want to hear what I have to say, right? I, I don't even listen to yeah. what you say. Okay. Clearly. Okay. Good. Now, Good. okay. I'll, so I'll, it's it, it's it's a topic Larry, of discussion right your now. Your question will come. We'll answer. It will come. It, it will come. So, for anybody watching the headlines today, the Bank of Canada they increased their their overnight rate fifty basis points. Pretty big hike. This is the biggest hike that the central bank has done in about two decades. Although it was widely anticipated to be a fifty point increase, the the last time they met it was a twenty five point increase. Uh, so, of course, the reason why the central bank is increasing interest rates is due to inflation. Inflation continues to, continues to increase, uh, and the, the central bank's decision to increase rates is an attempt to rein in inflation by by slowing down the economy or just, just stopping it from overheating. So inflation, as measured by the CPI, the last numbers we have in Canada are from February. It's 5.7%. We should get the March numbers over the next couple of days, but this is the highest inflation rate that we've seen since the mid 90s. In the US, they already have the March numbers, 8.5% inflation. 
Uh, that's the highest it's been in over 40 years. So there's lots of things causing inflation, the effects of government stimulus, supply chain issues, a constrained labor market, higher commodity prices, and of course, lower interest rates, low interest rates. Um, but what I want to do here is I want to focus a little bit on what this means for investors and particularly for investing in dividend stocks. Investors have lots of questions about how to position themselves in a high inflation, rising interest rate environment. And one of these questions is whether or not dividend paying stocks continue to be appropriate. Investors have been dealing with a very low interest rate environment for well over a decade right now. Fixed income securities that are generally safe, like government bonds and GICs, pay almost nothing. So traditionally, modern portfolio theory would stress that people in retirement or who are nearing retirement should have most of their capital in fixed income. But these methods were developed when bond yields in the past, when bond yields were much higher and providing a greater return. Over the past 10 years, we've seen the government of Canada 10-year bond average about 2.5%, uh, which for most, most people does not provide sufficient income. Today, it's about 2.6, 2.65. But after factoring in inflation rates, uh, you're, likely, you're, you're highly likely to get a negative return. Uh, and this hardly fits the model of risk-free. So the solution for many investors has been to substitute a portion of their bond portfolio with high quality dividend paying stocks. And this is a big part of Keystone's research as well, is researching and recommending dividend paying companies and dividend growth companies. But once again, with interest rates rising, some investors are cautious. They're concerned that with dividend stocks being income yield investments, that they will be subject to some negative pressure as yields on bonds and GICs begin to rise and become relatively more attractive. Uh, so for some dividend paying companies, I think this certainly can be the case, but others are very well positioned in the current environment, at least relative to other investment alternatives. One way that you can categorize dividend stocks is to put them into two groups, dividend payers and dividend growers. So payers provide a dividend, but the dividends don't grow over time. And generally this is because there's just no growth in the underlying business. And these are the types of dividend paying stocks that are really similar to bonds. You're, you're getting an income stream that's pretty steady, uh, but the income stream doesn't increase. Uh, just like with the bond, you're getting a coupon payment, but the coupon payment doesn't increase. You're not really getting a lot of capital appreciation. So the other group of dividend stocks are what we call dividend growers. And these are companies that are paying dividends, but they're also growing their dividends over time, usually on an annual basis. And the, the reason they're able to grow their dividends is because the underlying company is growing. They're reinvesting back in the business, the company's growing, the revenues are increasing, the cash flow per share is increasing, and this allows them to increase the dividend as well. So these companies really differentiate themselves from fixed income investments because you're not just getting a yield, you're investing in an actual business. There's capital appreciation potential, there's the growing income distribution or the growing dividend. And these are things that bonds can't replicate. So it's really more like investing in a stock that also pays dividends than investing in a proxy to fix income. Now, of course, dividend stocks uh, can reduce or suspend their dividend payments if the cash flow de declines. And this is where analysis of the individual company assessing the future growth potential and risk becomes really important. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna provide an example of one company that has been a longstanding stock in our coverage for more than 10 years now. 
just to give you an idea of, of how we're the, the model of the business we're looking for with respect to a dividend growth stock. The company I'm going to talk about is Brookfield Infrastructure, BIP.UN or BIPC, depending on the class you're buying. This is a global infrastructure company, so it owns assets like ports, railroads, data centers, energy transmission. These are essential assets that have very little economic sensitivity. About 95% of the cash flow comes from long-term contracts and regulated rate of return returns. Also, 70% of the company's revenue is indexed to inflation, which also provides that natural hedge. It pays a yield of about 3.3% today, but it's also growing its income distribution on an annual basis. So long-term, they're looking at growth of 6% to 9% per year. And this level of growth, it really helps to offset any, any inflation that eats into your capital. We recommended the company in 2011 at about $14.50. We've put out 30 buy reports on the company since then. Today, the stock's trading at $84. And what is really impressive is that this company over the past 11, year, 11 years has paid out over $20 in cash flow, income distributions per share to its investors over this 11-year period. So massive cash flow going to its investors and it's increasing that income distribution every year. So these are the types of attributes that strong dividend growers can provide that bonds or other fixed income can't replicate. With bonds, once again, you're not getting the capital appreciation, you're not getting the income growth. Now, the fact is that nothing is truly safe in the world today. Stocks aren't totally safe, but neither is fixed income when we consider the risks of inflation. Even a government bond that is considered to be risk-free or spoken about as being risk-free, uh, if, if it's not paying you enough to even overcome inflation, then you're setting yourself up for a negative return. Even cash isn't risk-free in an inflationary environment. So the best thing that an investor could do is to position your portfolio in a way where you can benefit and protect yourself in a variety of different economic scenarios. Dividend growth stocks, are a part of that, regardless of what somebody's perspective on inflation or interest rates increasing, regardless what the perspective is. Now, there's some very good research that has come out um, year after year from RBC Capital Markets. What they do is they track the yearly returns and risk of various stock categories on the TSX going back to 1986. They divide the market into various categories, which include dividend growers, dividend payers, dividend cutters, and non-payers. And over this 34-year period, dividend payers have averaged annual returns of 11%, highest category in the group, compared to 6% for the market average and only 1.2% on average for non-payers. But even more interesting than that is when we look at the risk. So they also they also track the risk over this over this period measured by annualized volatility. Annualized volatility of the dividend growers was 13% compared to almost 24% for the non-payers. So about half the risk measured by volatility, substantially more gain. So it's pretty clear from a risk return perspective that dividend growth stocks need to be a significant portion of a person's investment portfolio. Whether or not you need income or not, some of the best companies, some of the top performing companies are paying dividends and are growing those dividends over time. So even in an environment where interest rates are rising, they still need to make up an important part of someone's portfolio. You just have to be 
selective about what you invest in. But there are a lot of opportunities. I talked about Brookfield, where they actually have a natural hedge to inflation. Uh, and there's other companies that are that are well positioned in various markets that happen to be paying a dividend. They're growing their earnings. They're growing their cash flow. They're growing their dividends over time. These types of companies really form the base of a portfolio that can that, that can do well in a variety of scenarios. So that's sure. that's what I have to say about that. If if I could add another real world example too for my own portfolio, like you said, um, like they should make up the core of your overall portfolio. The first stock that I ever added or bought uh, was Dynacore, and at that time, you know, three years ago, I was I bought the stock for I believe a dollar sixty or dollar seventy around there. Uh, at that time, they were paying a, a trailing yield of about three percent, and now, um, you know. Based on that initial purchase price, I'm getting an effective yield, an effective dividend yield of about 7%. So it just shows when a company, you know, is increasing that dividend over time and Dynacor especially because they are increasing that cash flow uh, with that dividend, of course, um, you know, I'm getting rewarded with now a 7% yield on the money that I invested. Um, and it, that's probably going to continue to increase, you know, um, and then, of course, you know, not to mention what the stock has done itself. So, you know, I think that uh, that was a good discussion. Why don't, why don't you tell us what the stock has done too? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the stock has uh, it's trading at what three dollars and thirty cents, so something like that. It's up basically a hundred percent for my portfolio. Plus, I'm getting that seven percent yield. Yeah, can't complain. Yeah, no, and Aaron talked about and he gave an example there of a great long-term dividend growth stock in terms of Brookfield infrastructure from our portfolio. But I mean, we just put together, we just looked at all 400, you know, in that range, dividend stocks in Canada. We have 18 in that report that are on our focus by portfolio in our Canadian income or dividend service. Uh, you know, I don't know what you're waiting for. Just become a client to that service, get access to all of those companies, start building the core of your portfolio. 15 to 25 stocks that will start you on your way uh, to doing that, adding in some quality U.S. We're gonna we're finding some value in some technology situations there. Uh, we're seeing a bunch to avoid too as well. So we're going to help you avoid some of the pitfalls and uh, invest in businesses that actually have sustainable paths to growth over the long term and trade at relatively reasonable valuations. So we'll continue to do that now. I want to actually. We're we're done that, Aaron. You, you've said your bit, right? I've said I've said my Cause, bit. Yes, because Larry, Larry is just Larry is champing at the bit. He's not chomping at the bit. He's champing at the bit to have me answer that question. And you don't know that the reference Larry and his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. No, you don't know what I'm talking about. Sounds familiar. It's Bob Newhart. You remember the Bob right, Newhart show? Yes, yeah, yes, the Larry, yes, Bob, that. his slack jawed brother. This is going to go, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm, this is going to yes. go Just way over that. Brandon's head, though. <laughs> I yeah, know, it's, it's still, it's still. Yeah. It yeah. was a, a rather famous quote, just uh, extremely. Uh, it was. It's, it's actually a pretty funny show, Bob Newhart. So, anyways, I'm dating myself. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take buy, sell, or hold.
there, but okay. I'm going to look into that question. It's on Acuity Holdings, Inc., symbol AT on the TSX. Like I said, we just happened to sit down with management for about half an hour at an event and uh, grill them with some questions so I can go through the company. Acuity trades at around $4.06, $246 million market cap. Company is a tech ad tech company. It provides marketers a solution for digital advertising. They operate an advertising platform that brings programmatic and automate, automated capabilities using proprietary AI technology. The real growth in the business is coming from its self-serve platform called Illumin. Uh, in the fourth quarter, Illumin, the platform, the revenues jumped to $10.17 million, up from just around 946000 in Q4 2020. So strong growth there. Revenues, however, for the overall business were up just 5% to $36.8 million. Adjusted EBITDA actually decreased 25% to $5.87 million. And net income decreased 40% to $2.47 million. Uh, for the fourth quarter. Now, the good here, the balance sheet is tremendous. Acuity had cash and cash equivalents of about $102.2 million as at the end of this past year, 2021. Company has minimal debt, uh, so net cash is in the range of $95 million. So our conclusion here, Acuity continues to hold significant potential and looks to grow revenues. It, it is forecasting to grow in both 2020 and 2023, but Following a weaker Q3, or Q4, sorry, uh, questions of profit margins and growth therein remain. The company, again, has that strong balance sheet, net cash, just over $95 million. Trading va Trailing valuations actually look attractive. EV to EBITDA basis about 7.2 times the 2021 numbers. Cash out trades at a relatively attractive 13.8 times 2021 earnings. Cash in is twenty twenty or is twenty one times. Having said this, there's no official guidance from management analysts uh, for the twenty twenty two estimates uh, right now. Are to actually them to be just level in terms of earnings, and at worst a significant decline. Some analysts expect that over the course of this year. So, in the absence of guidance in terms of profit growth or margin growth near term, despite a great balance sheet, which can provide um, some. So, well, they can make acquisitions from that cash flow without, or from that cash on hand without diluting. We continue to just rank it as a monitor right now. We're not buying the stock near term, but we'll continue to monitor it and review it over time uh, and see if they can continue to grow profits. Yeah, it's quite the cash balance. Um, I mean, that was definitely uh, something that was brought up during the uh, the interview with them, and you know, they said that they wanted a strategic acquisition. You know, on more of the programmatic side, uh, strategic to that Illumin, you know, that's what they were essentially talking about. Um, you know, just from my notes, you know, they're saying that they're they're going to be careful. Uh, they believe that they'll be able to find an acquisition. But at the end of the day, it's going to be interesting to see what they what they do purchase. Yeah, I mean, the cash balance is almost 38% of the market cap right now. So, I mean, there's a yeah. significant portion of this in cash. Uh, you know, the run up in the stock in February up to like the $32 range was uh, not supported, we would say, by the underlying fundamentals. There was euphoria in the market at that time. Um, you know, it's gone from 32. You know, it peaked there just briefly, ever so briefly, but it's just, you know, followed a downward path back to the $4, $4 range where it trades today. Um, you know, if 
if the profitability, if this Illumin platform continues to grow, you know, there's definitely potential there. But, uh, you know, it's it's a technology company, ad tech business. But, you know, for there isn't a ton of recurring revenues, although if they continue to maintain their customers, I'm sure they continue to use Acuity. So but it's not like the traditional it's not a SaaS business or anything like that at this stage. So uh, it's something we continue to monitor. And that cash balance there is intriguing as they can use that. There is some depressed potentially valuations in this segment. They could maybe buy some profitable businesses that are on sale. So we'll monitor that and see if that can uh, lead to an uptick in margins and some more certainty in terms of the growth in profitability over 2022 or even into 2023. Uh, and that would be maybe a time we'd look at Acuity when we had more certainty on the in terms of profit growth going forward. Certainly. So let's look at our stock versus stock segment. Tyler, who I believe is a client, sent in a question about two Brazilian fintechs. Brazilian fintechs is Brennan's area of expertise. I'm kidding, but I'm <laughs> sure he, he would love to look into them. Uh, and he did. And you're going to take it now. You bet. So uh, Tyler says, I'm wondering which horse I should be betting on in the Brazilian fintech space, Stone Co. or Peg Seguro. Hopefully I'm saying that name right. Uh, he says, or should Better than I? than me, I'm sure. I mean, well, we everyone knows that. Just kidding, just kidding. But uh, he yeah. also says, <laughs> or I'll be out of job. Oh, I love yeah, it. Um, Tyler also says, or should I potentially be allocating capital to both? Well, let's take a look here. So first off, Peg Seguro Digital Limited, PAGS on the New York Stock Exchange trades at a price of about $17.55 and has a market cap of about $3.5 billion. It is a provider of financial technology solutions, primarily uh, focused on consumers, micro merchants, and small to medium sized companies in Brazil. The business model covers five pillars multiple digital banking solutions, uh, in person payment via point of sale devices free digital accounts with functionalities such as bill payments, uh, top-up prepaid mobile phone credit, wire transfers, peer-to-peer uh, -peer cash transfers, QR code payments, um, and more. Uh, also issuer of prepaid cash and credit cards, and then they also operate as a full acquirer. Now, Stoneco Limited, S-T-N-E on the NASDAQ, uh, trades with a price of $10.71 and a market cap of $2.8 billion. Uh, this company is a provider of financial technology and software solutions that empowers merchants to conduct commerce seamlessly across multiple channels. They do have two business segments. Uh, the first is financial services, which is 72% of revenue, uh, where they offer uh, point of sale systems for merchants plus a platform services. Uh, and then on the software side, which is about 18% of revenue uh, this year, uh, they offer workflow tool for merchants, including POS and ERP solutions. Then they also have digital and omni-channel solutions. So they're similar companies for sure. And that is why we are posing them head to head. So a few key points for Peg Seguro is in August of 2021, they announced the acquisition of Consul, a provider of numerous plugins for ERP systems. In April 2021, they launched Peg Phone, the first device in the world which is a smartphone, POS, and digital bank, 
all designed for the Brazilian entrepreneur. It's quite an interesting phone. I was looking at pictures of it. Uh, like there's almost two sides of it. I don't know if it's going to catch traction, but it's interesting that they're going that route. And then also in February of 2021, they announced it would launch a new service enabling clients to buy, hold, and sell cryptocurrencies. Um, now looking at Stone Co., a few key points. On August 11th of 2020, Stone announced that it has or had that it it had signed a def- a definitive agreement for Stone to merge its business with Lynx, a leading technology company that develops and provides integrated software solutions for retail management. During Q4, the company reorganized into two segments, financial services, uh, which is branded under its Stone, and software, which is essentially branded and integrating Lynx and other portfolio companies under one leadership uh, team. Now, since mid-2021, the company has been rebuilding its credit product to simplify user experience and improve risk monitoring. But the big thing and the reason this is very important is the the company struggled with higher provisions in Q3 and Q4 with growing bad loans, forcing it to halt lending. So that was scary. That was definitely something that led to the sell-off of the stock. Um, So, you know, credit, they don't have the best track record here um, of, of lending. So they, they are planning on uh, reinstituting that in Q1 of this year, uh, from my understanding. Um, but you know, there's definitely some risk there. So looking at the financials, uh, this is going back to Peg Seguro. Revenue grew uh, at 55% for Q4 of 21 uh, to 3.2 billion Brazilian real. Adjusted EBITDA was about 750 million Brazilian real, up about 3.4% year over year. Adjusted net income was about 426 million Brazilian real, down 1% year over year. And the balance sheet had net cash of about 788 million Brazilian real. Now, going over to Stoneco, Stoneco had a little bit of better growth. Revenue grew at 87% to 1.9 billion Brazilian real. And 27% of this growth was from the Lynx merger. Adjusted EBITDA was about 685 million Brazilian real, up 30% year over year. And adjusted net income was slashed drastically down to 33.7 million Brazilian real uh, with a 1.8% net margin, down 90% year over year. Um, But the company is anticipating margins to expand in 2022. And the company has a net debt balance on its balance sheet of about 1.2 billion Brazilian real. Um, So looking financially, I would say that, uh, you know, Peg Seguro does, you know, take it so far. But let's look at the valuations. So the valuations, Peg Seguro trades with an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of about 5.9 times, where Stone Co. is at 9.9 times. Uh, Peg Seguro has an enterprise value to free cash flow of about 8.6 times, whereas Stone Co's free cash flow is negative. So we actually can't even value it here. And then on a PE, Peg Seguro is at 11 times, whereas Stone Co is at about 67.5 times due to those really low earnings. And, you know, management did come out with some guidance for Stone Co for Q1 of 2022. Uh, saying that they're anticipating about 140 million Brazilian real. Now, even if we annualize this going forward, we're still getting to a price to earnings multiple of about 25 times. So, you know, overall, I would say that uh, Peg Seguro is, you know, better, better valued for the growth. 
Now, to overall conclude, between both Pegseguro and Stoneco, both are clearly higher risk stocks, having geopolitical risk with operations in Brazil, as well as being exposed to lending, which severely impacted Stoneco in the last few quarters. Personally speaking, I believe at this point in time, Pegseguro offers better value between the two, even though its growth has been slightly slower. And I am coming to this conclusion based on a healthier balance sheet, much better profitability, better historical operations, especially in regard to managing credit risk, where, uh, you know, Stoneco had to actually halt lending. And of course, you know, those trailing valuations that I just discussed. Now, this was just a quick analysis. Further areas of research that I didn't touch on is, uh, you know, we would want to know what the company's, what each company's organic growth is uh, compared to acquisition growth. And, you know, we should also look at the composition of each company's loan portfolio as Stone Co. looks to be lending to higher risk individuals as, you know, well, we, it would be nice to see kind of the growth of these loan portfolios. And lastly, I must indicate that I am not saying either of these companies meet Keystone's investment criteria or would be recommendations, but I am simply stating which investment opportunity I believe offers better value uh, and of course risk to reward going forward. So I would say Peg Seguro you know, takes the cake here. And I think Tyler owes you a dinner. That's all I can say. <laughs> that, was, that was a lot of uh, analysis it there. It was well done. Yeah, no, it was... Uh, it was good, and and to be honest, you know, based on that, Peg Seguro, yeah, bigger, growing, just slightly lower, really, in terms of revenues, uh, better profitability, far better balance sheet, and far better valuations. So, you know, based on that, you know, analysis right there, it, you know, of the two, if you had to put your money on one horse, as we put it there, Peg Seguro would be the name. Now we'd want to do more and you know research if we were actually making a recommendation on the two, but you know that's a summary of how we'd start and then we'd interview management and go from there and we'd have more questions probably uh, questions about organic growth and all that as well. So, yep. Uh, it was a good summary on the two, and I'm sure that will help out uh, help out Tyler and his investment decision on those two. Now. I think that's going to end off our show for this week, unless Aaron has another segment that he's got up his sleeve, which I don't think he does. So we're going to sign off for this week. I'd like to thank uh, my co-hosts. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take. If you got two companies like Tyler did for us to review, send those in. We'll pit them against each other. Uh, maybe have one of our judge, jury, and executioner segments upcoming. Uh, again, if you're interested in that seminar, it's available on demand. Uh, the live webinars we just did, just go to www.keystocks.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and we'll keep pumping out good content for you every week. I'd like to thank you all and wish you, as always, profitable investing. Thanks, everyone. Profitable investing.